Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, uh, and I am joined by a group of my colleagues. Uh, of course, Ryan, Ryan Sweet, uh, Director of Real-Time Economics. Hi, Ryan. How are you? Hanging in there, Mark. How are you? I'm okay. Not too bad. This week went by pretty quickly. And we've got Chris Dorides, uh, the Deputy Chief Economist. Chris, how are you? Doing well, Mark. Yeah, and you're still in the office, Chris. Last time I saw you, you were there. Are you? You're twenty four seven in that office now. No, no, I'm hybrid. I'm hybrid. You're hybrid. Okay, very good. And uh, And I was in New York yesterday. Oh, how did it look in New York? New York was quieter, but it was Hmm. great. It was my first uh, economic outlook presentation since the live presentation since the pandemic. Was good to be back. Oh, who'd you who'd you present to? I went to see a. Let's say mid-range uh, bank. Uh, no, if I should. Oh, you don't no, no, no names. No, no <laughs> I don't names. Know if we should, okay. right? Okay. But uh, uh, they were very gracious because I was a little bit rusty. But uh, oh, can't imagine that. So, yeah. Uh, you know, and the then, live live presentation is different. Yeah, I I I told you I went to Miami for a real estate conference and spoke, and I felt I felt ener- uh, energizing. I had yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I can't for wait sure, to do more of that. And uh, we're joined by two other colleagues. Uh, we've got Chris Lafakis. Chris, how are you? Chris is uh, all thing climate change and, of course, a lot of expertise in the energy industry, which is uh, where we're going to head in the big topic today, energy prices. Chris, good to see you. Oh, good to see you. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me and let's have some fun. Absolutely. That's what we do here at uh, Inside Economics. And Garab Ganguly. Garab uh, is a recent... Uh, new uh, person to Moody's Analytics. Of course, uh, I've known Garab for probably a decade, right, Garab? Yeah, I'd say it's, best, it's, it's, it's more than a decade, Mark. Is it? Oh, geez. Really? I, I, I reckon I was, trying, I was trying to figure this out the other day and I, I got, I, you know, I got lost in time. Was it 10 years or 12 years? <laughs> uh, well, we're really very happy to have Garab with us. Uh, Garab is a fantastic economist uh, headquartered in London, also an expert in climate change as well. And uh, we, uh, we've asked uh, Garab to join us to talk about uh, energy markets in, in Europe, which obviously a lot going on there. So good to have you. Hey, Garab, uh, maybe you could t- tell uh, us a little bit about yourself uh, just to introduce you. I, I think everyone knows the rest of us, but uh, maybe just a little bit about your background. Sure, sure thing, Mark. So first of all, thanks for inviting me on the show. It's great to be here and great to have everybody else in here as well. And I'm the newbie. I joined uh, Moody's Analytics three weeks ago. So a new kid on the block, um, based in London, as Mark said. He's actually told you everything you need to know about me, I think. <laughs> no, just kidding. So I, I have been working in financial services for the past 15 years across a, a number of different institutions, ranging from credit insurance, investment banking to universal banking. My last job was actually at uh, HSBC. Some of you may have heard of that. Um, at the group level, I was responsible for an economics research and analytics unit. And we um, looked at emerging macro risks right across the group. So that's from Europe to Asia to Latin America and, and, and trying to work out what those risks might mean for the group's financial stability from a capital perspective and also how these should translate into scenarios for, for, for calculating loan loss impairments. So that's been... That's a lot of what I've been doing. Um, it's, it's been pretty broad. So looking at economic risk, geopolitical risk, climate risk, sometimes even you know operational risks, whatever it takes from a bank's 
bank's perspective, I guess. Um, so yeah, that's that's been my that's been my background for the last several years. Uh, I you know did a PhD somewhere back in the mists of time in economics. He's an Oxford PhD, I, I, an Oxford PhD. Yeah, yeah. For, for, for my sins, and even before that, Mark, I actually trained as a chartered accountant. I was I was telling oh, uh, somebody that. that the other day that I actually started out life as an accountant and, and, and obtained an ACA qualification in London. So yeah, um, jack of all trades, master of none, really happy to be on here today. Well, it's fantastic to have you. Hey, uh, uh, Chris Dorides, uh, you have a PhD from Johns Hopkins, right? Yeah. That's right. Johns Hopkins, right. And uh, uh, th- those Oxford PhDs, they're 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 pretty good to have, I, I'd say. What do you think? That's what I hear. That's what I hear. That's what I, <laughs> that's what I, that's, that's, that's what I yeah, hear, to be honest. To, 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 yeah. be, to be honest, Chris, uh, I've never actually uh, worked out whether they mean that much than any other PhD, but that's what I hear. That's very good. Well, uh, we are going to talk about uh, what's top of mind, or at least there's, it seems like there's a lot of things top of mind these days, but the higher energy prices, oil prices have, have moved up uh, quite significantly. Everyone's paying a lot more for gasoline. I know you are in the UK, we are here in the US, and uh, natural gas markets, coal markets, uh, a lot to talk about there. And so we'll come back to that. But before we uh, get to the big topic, uh, let's uh, talk about the statistics, the economic statistics. And of course, we play a bit of a game uh, to make this a little easier to digest. And we each uh, 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 call out a statistic and the rest of us try to figure out what that statistic is. And hopefully, again, the best statistic, I've said this I think numerous times, but I'll say it again. The best statistic is one, just to remind everybody, the best statistic is one that's not so easy that it's a slam dunk. We all get it quickly, but not too hard that we can never figure it out. And also a bonus if it uh, has some broader point about what's going on in the economy or the prospects for the economy. Okay. Uh, And I traditionally start with Ryan. So Ryan, I'm going to start with you. All right. So I picked one that, uh, is top of mind, probably more important in, on everyone else's mind besides energy, and it's minus 7.2% month over month. Minus 7.2%. This is a statistic that came out this week? Yes, yes. I, I stay true to that tradition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. People know that I, I break that rule every once in a while. Uh, I'm guilty of that. Uh, minus 7.2%. Um, and to be fair to Rob, it's, it's, it's an U.S. indicator. So it's a U.S. indicator. Yep. Uh, is that a, 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 you, did you calculate that change in the statistic or is that a stated statistic? It's It's reported. It's reported as minus 7.2%. Another hint is this was one of the big surprises of the week. So this factors into an overall number, which came in a lot weaker. Oh, is this industrial production? Very good. Getting closer. Oh, you got to dig in. Decline in uh, vehicle production. Very good. Oh, you're you're doing great reasoning. Wait wait for it. Wait for it. Ding, 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 ding. All right. All right. Here we go. Let's go with one of these. My wife, you know, (laughs) I got to talk to my wife. She keeps telling me, uh, threatening that she's going to get me a bell. Get I got you a bell. bell. Did you really? Can I, I see it? I got you and Chris bells. Yep. Cowbells. Where, is, where are they? Uh, you didn't, 
you gonna send it to us or they're, they're right they're, over there yeah oh, really the amazon box yeah i'll pull them out oh, okay talking. okay pull them out pull them out we gotta take a look at it so okay so uh this is industrial production so this is a measure of output correct and yeah. uh it declined well i'll let you explain it and tell us why you think this is an important statistic go ahead so it fell for the second consecutive month. So this counts essentially like the amount of production for motor vehicle and parts. And as everyone's aware, global supply chain issues, the uh, semiconductor shortage is all weighing very heavily on industrial production for uh, uh, cars, vehicles. Uh, you, our new car inventory is near record lows, and that's driving prices higher. And these supply chain issues are limiting the supply response. So, you know, we're not going to get, you know, an immediate you know, relief on the price front because manufacturers can't ramp up production in response to higher prices because you know, things are all bottlenecked throughout the supply chain. Right. And this uh, decline in industrial production was a bit of a surprise. Uh, and it did contribute to another marking down of our uh, tracking estimate for third quarter GDP. Correct. And where do we stand on that? Now, what, what do we think third quarter GDP is going to? And by the way, we get that statistic next week, which we do. Maybe one. Yeah, we get that next week. A big statistic. What do you think? Uh, what are we tracking now? Where's one point four percent at an annual rate? So mm. we're below the consensus. So uh, we partnered with CNBC, and we've been doing this for years now, Mark. I mm -hmm. when we started, it. Uh, and we survey economists that have all these tracking models, uh, and the median estimate among them is 2.3%. So we're a little bit below what- Although I know we're, we're quite, we're one of the more accurate, I think, tracking uh, estimates. And I think mm -hmm. Atlanta Fed, the Atlanta Fed has its own GDP now, I think they call it. They do. And, and that's even lower, right? What is that? I think that's uh, that's well below one. Oh, I think, it, I, I, yeah, I, I, that was a trick question. I know the answer is 0. 0.5, 0. Okay. 0. 0.5, yeah. So- uh, and that, that that's a high, also quite accurate. I believe they're pretty good too. So, mm -hmm. so it feels like it's going to come in around one. Okay, let me ask you this question: What probability do you put on the possibility that GDP is actually negative in the third quarter? Twenty-five, uh, a third. And the third? reason why is that all the yeah. growth is going to be in inventories, and it's really hard to pin the advance estimate of the inventory build or decline. Uh, it's just inventory is very really volatile. We get one more or two more important pieces into our high frequency GDP model next week. We get durable goods orders and then we get the advanced number on the goods deficit and inventory. So, you know, after we see that, we'll have a really good feel of what GDP is going to be. But I mean, it's possible it could fall. But again, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, there's a lot of chatter. I, I don't know if you and Chris have gotten it. I've got a lot of questions about Indeed. whether or not we're descending into a recession. I've seen yes. that. And in, I mean, that's a little premature. I mean, even if premature, GDP <laughs> I don't think that's the word. That's just wrong. I was just I, I was trying yeah. to be polite. Like, I, yeah, no, 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 no. This, this, right. uh, well, I don't know. That's my feeling. I mean, I think, uh, actually, I was uh, this fellow, um, is it, uh, David Blanchflower. Garab, you mm -hmm. might know him. I think he was on the bank of on the BOE, wasn't he? He was in the BOE's uh, Monetary Policy Committee a while ago. Yeah. And he's a bit of a, at least, my points of contact with him, he's a bit of a, um, an iconoclast. He kind of is out there a little bit on issues. Was he, was he that way at the BOE, do you recall? Yeah, I think so, yes. Yeah. 
uh, interesting fellow, you know, very, obviously very bright, uh, thoughtful fellow, but he's kind of out there a bit. And um, he uh, wrote a paper, I think with a Chicago, University of Chicago professor saying high probability of recession, or we already are in recession. And I think yeah, they were focused yeah. on the consumer sentiment indices, which have fallen you know, sharply because of Delta. There's, there's I, their flaw right there. You don't put too much stock in consumer confidence. I mean, it's, it's all Delta driven. The drop in confidence. Yeah. All you have to do is look at the yield curve, right, Brian? That's. Oh my God! No, we're not going down this rabbit hole. <laughs> Which is but pretty wide, talking, wide, just, right? That yeah, was very yeah. wide. Yeah. But when we're talking about land flow and, and Europe, it's a similar sort of thing on this side of, of the water. I mean, again, consumer confidence fallen quite a lot recently in the UK. It fell about four points, but I completely agree. You can't put that much store by consumer confidence itself. Uh, that's so much driven by, as you said, Ryan, by, by, by Delta. And it's also driven in, in the UK, for instance, by um, people's views around supply shortages and what it's doing to their disposable incomes right now. But this is, this is quite a, it's quite a fickle sentiment, right? I think I'd put more store by the fact that PMIs are starting to decline in Europe. Um, there's still an expansionary territory, but what we're looking at in terms of declines in industrial production, uh, more and more manufacturers coming out and stating that they're actually suffering from shortages of raw materials or simply simply rising prices. So there's a similar kind of view here that when we start thinking about third quarter output, there's a risk, a non-tangible risk that it could be negative. PMI, by the way, listener, is a me- another measure of industrial activity. It's just a, a survey-based. PMI stands for Purchasing Managers Index. So they do. there's a survey of purchasing managers, and based on that, they construct an index, and that's still very, very high. But uh, Grob's making the point. You're, I think you're making the point that it's starting to come in a little bit and might reflect some weakness in the economy. Um, yeah, the way I think about consumer sentiment as a uh, indicator of potential recession is that a very sharp decline in sentiment for two, three, four months is a uh, is a necessary condition for recession, but it's far from sufficient. I mean, you know, that's that's not by itself going to get you there. In fact, I was um, I was asked by a journalist about the Blanche Fowler piece, and it, you know, it's my immediate gut reaction was, uh, "Well, that's really wrong." Uh, you know, I said something to the effect that. Less than one percent probability we're going into recession, and, and that's of course the quote that got into the paper. Uh, I, I think Blanche Flower saw that and was uh, took a little bit of umbrage and uh, tweeted something. And the the journalist said, "Did I ha- did I have any comment on the Blanche Flower <laughs> comment?" And I said, uh, "No, I, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'm not going to respond." Oh, it was a it was a, it was, it was a tweet. He uh, Blanche Flower tweeted this out and said, "You know, are you going to respond versus on Twitter?" And I said, "No." By the way, good advertisement, good time to advertise. I am now active on Twitter at Mark Zandy, and I am oh, wow. the Mark Zandy. So you know, feel free to to follow me. I know Ryan's following me very carefully, right, Ryan? Sure. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not on Twitter. Uh, I'm not oh, a big social media person. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Chris Lafakis? Are you? Uh, I'm. You know what? It's getting hard to say Chris and Chris. I'm gonna say Chris L and Chris D. Is that okay? Can we do it that yeah. way? Chris L. Chris L. What do you? Th- are you on Twitter? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Um, are you following me? Uh, I didn't know you were on Twitter, Mark. <gasps> I mean, oh, come on, man. I need uh, I need followers. Let's go. Uh, I'm gonna find you. I'm gonna sign up right after this. Okay, very I, good. I uh but yeah, I mean I I well I, I agree with you guys about recession. Um, uh, but 
I at the same time don't want to understate the the tremendous stress that the production side of the economy is under right now. Um, and it's evident in the um, in the IP data. And just like just to give you an anecdote there, IP like I was no acronyms on inside. Economics. Oh, I'm sorry. If okay. You, okay. An acronym, you got to define the acronym. OK, okay. Uh, IP, this is industrial production. It's it's it, yeah. And uh, uh, so a real life example. So recently me and my wife were and I don't even know if this is appropriate for inside economics because it's my first time. But I will say it anyway. Fire away. Okay, we were shopping for a car and we showed up at the Toyota dealership and there were no cars for us to drive, right? To speak to this point of no inventory. And um, eventually we found a car at the Nissan dealership that we bought and they gave us no discount off of the MSRP price, right? Because there's again, no inventory. And I saw that Toyota announced in September it would cut production globally by 40%. And and it's not just the semiconductors. I was reading the other day about a shortage of magnesium production that is used to make aluminum alloys in China because of the power and energy crisis in China, which I'm sure we'll get into later. But uh, if you just look across the board, um, the supply side of the economy is under tremendous. I haven't seen it like this before. I've been a professional economist for 15 No, no, years. no. This is it's, it's highly disrupted. Yeah. The supply chain, no doubt, and related to the Delta. I think my 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 sense is that the Delta variant did serious damage to not only the U.S. but the entire global economy. And these supply chain, particularly in Asia and particularly Southeast Asia, where the supply chains begin, and so clearly the slower growth we're observing and maybe the stalling out, like China basically didn't grow in the third quarter, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and so, you know, clearly Delta has done a lot of damage, but that's a long, long uh, step to, you know, recession, which is a a sustained, you know, a persistent, broad-based decline in economic activity. I think we're, you know, a long way from that. Uh, but I mean, one, uh, one quick I, I mean, point, one quick point, even though we have all these supply chain issues, industrial production is really close to where it was pre-pandemic. So even yeah, though we but, have all yeah. these hurdles, I mean- it's the supply That's response has been pretty solid. It's the demand has been so strong. It's exactly. just outstripped yeah. even the, the yeah, stronger yeah. supply. That's the other point to make. Hey, but this is a good time for me to give you my statistic. Usually I go last, but because this is a bit of a hint of the conversation we just had, because my statistics is a little, I thought it was going to be hard, but now it's going to be easier because of this hint. So let me make, let me say it. 37 times. 28 oh, times, yeah, no, no. 23 I, I times. That. Yeah, I counted oh. that. The number of references in the beige book to supply chain disruptions. Oh, you were the one who came up with that? Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I checked oh, it out. Okay. <laughs> okay, you're, you're the one who did the counting. Oh, okay. That was well, no, too I easy. mean, that's control find. I mean, it was pretty. We can make it oh, sound okay. like it was all right, a lot all right. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> wait, for the listener, listen. So that, that was, I guess it turned out to be too easy, but I thought I was being pretty clever. That 37 times is the number of times uh, supply chain bottleneck or some variation of, of that theme was in the beige book that the Federal Reserve produces. So for each FOMC meeting, each meeting of the Operating Market Committee of the, of the Fed, they put together a beige book, which is a compilation of anecdotes and other information about the different Fed district banks around the country. It gives you a good regional sense. And we, we follow that very carefully and actually construct an index uh, uh, to try to give people a sense of how the language in the beige book translates into what it means for the economy. And by that index, we're still at a very, the beige book is still pretty upbeat and optimistic. 
although it's down from where it was. But the thing that stood out was all of these references pretty much everywhere across the country uh, to supply chain bottlenecks. To your point, Chris, you know, that Chris L, that's you know, very key. Okay. Well, uh, since you, you wrote the, the, the uh, you did the analysis on that report, anything else in the Beige Book that struck you? There's one other thing that I found pretty cool, and that was regionally pretty big differences, at least in terms of our index measuring the strength. One, the strongest, anyone want to guess what is the, in terms of the beige book, uh, which district, Federal Reserve District? I think how many are there? There's twelve. 12 I think. 12. Yeah. Uh, which district is has the is the is the strongest? And, and there's actually uh, two districts that are I think uh, equally as strong. The Dallas. Yeah, Dallas. Oh, you're looking it up, Chris. I can see. No, you. I'm not. No, yes, I'm not are. looking it up. <laughs> He's looking have, it up. He got I'm up really, the, I'm no? a so good economist. I mean, <laughs> I just came up with Dallas and that was it. I, I mean, do you want me to get the other divert, one? It looked like he was looking at the screen. No? Okay. All right. I falsely do you want me to, uh, do you want me to guess the other one? Yeah, go ahead. All right. I'm going to guess Richmond. I think it is Richmond, but, but I forget actually. So I don't oh. know. <laughs> we'll it <laughs> I think it's Richmond. I think it is Richmond. Uh, guess what's the week or not guess, but I'm sure someone knows Chris L probably knows this too. <laughs> Chris L you, you answer this question. What is the weakest district according to the uh, fed beige book? Um, that's actually a little bit tougher for me, but I'll guess Boston. Oh, geez, Louise. He's right. He's right. Okay. You're looking, you're looking. Okay. Yeah. It's only because All the right. Red Sox are down three, two. <laughs> in the ALCS, That's the oh, only reason they? Boston's suffering. Yeah. I don't want to talk about it, Ryan. Right. I don't want. To I haven't it. looked at like the Beige Book in like five, six years. By the way, very it's good actually percent. really informative. Like I, I paid yeah. very close. There's not, there's no numbers in it for the most part. It's all anecdotes, but it's, it's, it's really informative. I mean, one thing that stood out is they, they, they were talking about. Uh, I look at like supply or labor supply issues and what you know they're attributing to childcare issues, which we've talked about a lot on the podcast. Uh, not a lot of references to UI benefits, but you know, one thing that could emerge now is this vaccine mandate, you know, and whether or not that's going to be another, you know, labor supply issue. Yeah, yeah. What about? Oh, you mentioned the child tax credit. You, um, you mentioned that, right? Child care issues. Some, yep. Child child care issues. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Well, that was my statistic. So, who wants to go next? Uh, Chris L, you want to go? You since you're on such a roll, do you have a? I, well, I, actually. I, I'm presumptuous. I'm assuming you have one. You don't necessarily need to have one. Do you have a statistic you want to use or not? Actually, no. Uh, I, I didn't oh, okay. know what, no what to prepare for this segment. Oh, no worries. So, no worries. So. That that no worries at all. Uh, uh, Grav, do you have a statistic you want to use? Yeah, uh, I could. I could. I could come up. I could come up with one. So I'll use okay. a non-US statistic just to make okay. it clear. Okay. Uh, yeah. And, uh, I think I'll go for I'll go for the number three point four. Well, that's it's actually a percentage. Three point four percent. 3.4%. And it's a non-US um, number. Is it a UK number? That's a telling, wouldn't it? We're going to narrow it down now. Sorry, what's that? UK CPI. No, it's not UK CPI, but you're close. You're very close. Okay. All right, wait, don't tell us. You, it's you, it's definitely a UK series. You didn't want to tell us it was UK. Uh, I, I, no, 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 I didn't say it was a UK series. I just said you were close. So it could be a UK oh, okay. series. It could EU, be a CPI series. EU CPI. EU CPI. 
Closer, closer still. It's exactly, Eurozone. It's Eurozone CPI, exactly. Okay. That's a September. Okay. It's a All September. Right. It's a September number, and the yeah. significance of that is, of course, that the the European Central Bank has a price stability mandate of two percent, and for several months now, monthly monthly reads of Eurozone inflation have been coming in above two percent, and the latest reads at three point four percent, and actually quite a lot of that has been driven by energy price increases. So. Of that 3.4%, roughly 1.7% represents energy price increases. So this brings us back to what we are talking about here, that energy price increases are not just being felt in the US, they're actually being felt in many parts of the world. The UK has a particular problem with energy price increases, and we can come on to that later, but it's also being felt in the Eurozone, and it's being felt for a while. It doesn't look like this is going to go away anytime soon, I don't think. Um, it's going to be several months before these kinds of price effects wane, the ECB is quite, still remains quite confident in its view that inflation is kind of hump-shaped. So it's picked up now. It's going to carry on uh, this upward trend for a few months yet before it starts to come down. Um, in the UK, it's a bit different. They're much more concerned about persistent inflation. But I know we're going to talk about some of these things later, so I don't want to, don't want to jump in right now. Garab, do you know offhand what the current inflation rate is in the UK? Uh, it oh, it's, it's, it's nudging nudge past 4%. Though, well, it's, it's expected to, it's expected to, I take that back, it's expected to nudge past 4%. It actually dipped in September and came in at 3.1, but that was kind of a oh, temporary okay. temporary thing. But it's expected to nudge past 4% by the end of this year. And actually, the, 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 the chief economist of the Bank of England, Hugh Pill, who seems to be very hawkish about inflation, his view is that it could easily go past 5% in the early part of next year, which makes monetary setting monetary policy quite a challenge in the UK. And, and, some, and he in particular has been talking about the November rate meeting as possibly being very much a live decision where the bank will be forced into raising rates. This November? This November, as, as early as this November, exactly. So that's a big change. That's a step change wow. in, in, in the UK. You know, if you think back to... Um, you know, the start of the pandemic back to March last year, everybody scrambling around to put rates down to the zero bound, or in the case of the euro area, not do anything with rates because they haven't done anything with rates for about 12 years. Uh, but at least in at least in the UK and in other, other advanced economies, the independent central banks trying to rush back down to the zero bound and then thinking, when will we ever get out of this? The UK now looks like it might be the first out of the blocks now and, and, and in lifting rates. Now, they're not saying that they're going to do this because of the energy price squeeze. Uh, if they do do this, then, well, at least in the words of Hugh Pill, it's because of the underlying forces in the economy that suggest that the economy is no longer needs to be at the zero bound, which I guess in, in, in plain speak translates into saying that activity has come back up. So this speaks to Ryan's earlier point um, when Ryan said that industrial production is pretty much back to pre-pandemic levels. Well, that's true of you know, various economies, industrial production, consumer demand, especially on the consumption side. It's all back to, it's, it's all looking healthy. It's all back to pre, pre-pandemic levels or close to being back to well, pre-pandemic I guess, levels. I guess the other, the other thing about the UK and the EU is the labor market is in much, you know, much closer to full employment than say the US, right? Because of the labor market schemes that were put into place, you never saw the high unemployment, or at least the, the the kind of unemployment we saw here in the U.S., where we didn't have those kinds of uh, very supportive uh, to the uh, supports to the labor market. That, that's right, and in fact, um, in the U.K. in particular, uh, we've been 
all very, we've all been wrong-footed over the course of the last 18 months in terms of thinking about potential rise in unemployment. I remember when, when, when the pandemic struck, I think there was just massive panic amongst all economic observers, even, even in markets where you thought, well, you probably have a furlough scheme that would underwrite part of the labor market. Panic still continued in thinking about the issue because it wasn't clear how many people might just drop out of the labor force altogether or simply not get furloughed. And so I think forecasts in 2020 were quite negative initially. Even the Bank of England was carrying very negative forecasts for unemployment right out to the end of the year because they were saying they just didn't have a handle on the unemployment situation. Yeah. But over the course of 21, it's become really obvious that all these schemes have completely underwritten labor markets. So we've seen very, very little rise in unemployment rates across a number of European countries. And when you look at the UK, then it's clear now that there's a lot of tightness in the labor market. Just a, a month ago, um, we, we got the statistic of 1.1 million, if I can throw another statistic out there, there that go. was job vacancies, that was job vacancies. Right? 1.1 million vacancies coming out of a pandemic when 1 million people are still actually, we're just about to roll off a government support scheme um, for, on, 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 on furlough. So that was quite a statistic. Um, in well, Europe, I think, what if... I was just going to add... Go ahead, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. No, uh, fair enough. Go ahead. Go ahead, Garof. Sorry. I, I was just going to say that um, in, in Europe, what that means is that as we come out of all these employment support schemes, we don't necessarily go back to tight labor market conditions because some of these countries have got longstanding issues with labor force. You know, Spain's got very high youth unemployment. France has a reasonably high unemployment rate, but a huge issue with skills mismatches and so on. Italy has its own issues with the labor market. So we kind of get back, unwind the situation, and we start going back to the pre-pandemic structural issues. Yeah, I was just, uh, you know, since you're showing off, I was going to show off too. You said 1.1 million uh, job vacancies in the UK, 10.4 million open job positions in the US. So not quite a record high, but pretty close. But let's move on. Uh, Chris D, uh, what's your statistic for the week? I've got one for the uh, the big topic, but I'll save that one. Um, okay. In terms of this week, what happened? Uh, I'm going to go with 1.041 million. M million. All right. There we go. You know Mark, this, you Ryan? No. Yes. Okay, I'll let you have it. <laughs> 1.041. Think about Chris. What's Chris? Oh, this Yo, is where housing. does he go? Is housing? Is this well? The only 1.041 is that the single family starts? Uh, permits. Oh, permits, single family permits, yep. right. I had to okay. make it a little bit difficult, right? So. Yeah, 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 yeah. Got to mix it up a little bit. <laughs> well, yeah, make so, it for last week. Yeah. So well, tell us about week. the housing starts report. Remember so, yeah, tell us about the housing uh, starts report. The starts report overall, it was, uh, it was weaker than, uh, than expected, than consensus, certainly down from the, the month before as well. So, you know, since March, things have been trending downward. Uh, chalking up largely to the supply chain issues. That seems to be... Again, the reported uh, reason why the numbers continue to be weak. And it, that doesn't look as though it's going to clear up anytime soon. And I'm, I'm concerned that, okay, you know, so what? We don't build the houses now, but we'll build them later. I'm concerned we're not going to get the burst in, in, in building later on. The other thing in the report is a weak, it was particularly weak in the multifamily sector, but that tends to be a, a volatile. So don't read too much into that, but certainly it was... That was clearly dragging down the overall uh, numbers. Right. I mean, the but one also, thing... Oh, go ahead, Ryan. Uh, yeah. The only thing I was going to add to Chris, I, I agree everything Chris said, but 
with this number, it's for September, and this captured Hurricane Ida. So anytime you have hurricanes, permits are actually more affected than starts. Yeah, right. And uh, one, one, one thing about the starts I find uh, a little uh, odd or interesting is the multifamily starts, they go up and down every month, obviously, kind of lumpy because mm -hmm. these could be big yep. projects, uh, is that they're cutting through the volatility pretty high around 500,000 units, multifamily units per annum, which by almost all historical standards is a pretty high level. Of it's at the higher end. Yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah, so clearly there's still lots lots of demand. The affordability issues, I think, are still pushing in the direction of uh, more and, higher density. And I guess with rents accelerate, vacancy rates are still low, particularly for affordable rental, lower uh, lower rent points and cap rates, which are, uh, you know, reflect the prices investors are willing to pay for multifamily property are very low, meaning investors can't get enough of the multifamily property. So that's a signal to build, right? So there's, mm -hmm. there's a, feels like we're going to get more building here, more construction, but you're, as to your point, you might be just constrained by the ability to get stuff to build with. The, yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. Hey, one statistic or one indicator that we've been following that seems to signal, hey, no problem with the economy. In fact, maybe the economy is going to pick up here and, and that would be more consistent with my view. And I'm curious uh, how you think about this, Ryan, is the 10-year treasury yield. The 10-year treasury yield has really moved up quite a bit. It was as low as 1.2, maybe 1.25 not long ago, four, six, eight weeks ago, mm -hmm. I think when Delta was at its peak, uh, it, having its peak impact on the infections in the economy, it's now 1.7 or pretty close to 1.7. That's a pretty significant move. Uh, what, what's your interpretation of that? I'm really curious, and you know, you do this nice decomposition of the 10-year yield so we can get a sense of what's driving it. So, you know, what is your, what's your take on that? So the way we do it is we decompose the tenure into its three main components. Uh, inflation, long-term inflation expectations. So what, you know, it's market-based, what uh, investors think inflation is going to be five, 10 years down the road. Uh, also, uh, the expected path of the real Fed funds rate. So market expectations for, you know, the path of, of monetary policy. And then the term premium, which is the extra compensation investors need to hold long-term treasuries uh, versus short-term. Uh, so when you decompose it, all three components have edged higher recently. The biggest move is in inflation expectations and, you know, kind of segueing into our big topic, it's energy prices. So there's a very strong uh, correlation and causal relationship between global energy prices or oil prices and market-based inflation uh, expectations. So investors basically say, you know, higher oil prices today mean higher inflation down the road. And that's what's really driving the tenure up recently. And then on the other hand, causal, causal, what do you mean causal? You mean changes in oil, oil, global oil prices cause changes in inflation expectations. So we don't want to fall into that trap like correlation doesn't, you know, you know, correlation means causation. That doesn't apply every time. But in this instance, it does apply. I find it so bizarre. I mean, oil prices go up and down and all mm -hmm. around, you know, in weeks, months, you know, and this is For 10 years. years for years I've been trying to figure this out. Yeah. It's a mystery. It's same same thing with consumers though. You know, they see higher oil prices, gas. That prices, I understand. Right? Yeah. That I get. 
that I get. They're, you know, they're most people forecast with a, a short-term ruler. They take mm-hmm. what happened today, what happened yesterday, and they draw a line, and that's the forecast for the future. I can see most people doing that. That's the way they forecast, but not for an investor. I find that bizarre, really. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, so it's, the it's 50 basis point rise in the 10-year yield, how much of that is inflation expectations? A little bit less than half. How much is the term premium? Uh, a quarter. And the other one's the... Okay. So if you look at uh, Fed funds futures, markets are now pricing in two 25 basis point rate hikes next year, which is a big shift. Oh from just wow. a few months ago where you know they were thinking early 2023 like us now they're thinking you know the fed's going to move in 2022 well it's consistent with what Rob was saying about the BOE kind of pulling things forward here too so it feels like all the central yeah. banks or at least expectations are forming that they're going to tighten sooner than was the case just a few months ago or a month ago it was ago. interesting when uh, the, the governor of the BOE I think it was one of the governors like made those hawkish comments you saw an immediate response in fed funds futures they just applied you know this is what the fed's going to be doing next uh, mm. which I think Powell's much more patient than you know the BOE mm. hey I, I wanted to bring up we uh, tenure treasury yield is one of those indicators that we follow uh, on a consistent basis one of the others is UI claims hey Chris they stayed yeah. low again this week they did they went lower two nine two hundred ninety thousand Right, so, so that defies Ryan's up. expectations, right? Ryan thought it was last week's decline below 300k was temporary. Are you still sticking to that, Ryan? You still think it's seasonal, or is this something more fundamental going on here? Meaning, UI unemployment insurance claims are declining, which is a good sign for the economy. No, I think it's a good sign. I think it, it, last week's yeah. improvement was just overstated. In the next couple of weeks, they'll move up. They'll move up. Okay, and but I, I, we're, it feels I, like we're I, around 300k I, now. Yeah, is that what? That Okay. I was at 294, the forecast. So, I mean, (laughs) kind of some slack. Okay. You still got it. Oh, now, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but the this is for the survey week. This number we just got, the 294, is for the survey week. And that's well below initial claims for unemployment insurance a month ago during the survey week for the BLS employment report. That's right. So, that would suggest height of the pandemic. We might be get a we might be getting a pretty good, yeah, we might be getting a pretty good jobs number. That would be the inference for the yeah, month of October. That's right. That's what I expect. Uh, I don't know, Ryan, what's your, okay. what's your call? Yeah. Early. It's early. Still for early. Yeah. It's, it's too yeah. early. I mean, Chris, what's your number? What's your gut? Uh, 600,000. Ooh. Mark. All right. Uh, I, I think it's going to be a big number. I think it'd be 750. What do you think, Ryan? I think you guys are close. I think you're a little, <laughs> Mark's a little optimistic, but that's true to nature. I mean, it's going to be, I, it's going to be, oh, didn't realize might. That. I mean, we still get a few more inputs into our models, but you know, okay. next week we can discuss it. Okay. I'm going to end this conversation around statistics because we got to move on. This took a lot longer than I expected. Um, with this question, what is the, going back to that question that the, the around, recession. What is the probability the US economy is entering into a recession right now? Very quickly, just you know what your sense of it is. Chris D? right now? Right now. You know, yeah, like it's, it's, it's headed into recession. Yeah, it's yeah. on the verge right. of recession. Yeah. It's certainly less than 10%. But... 10%. Ryan? Two. Two percent. That's two. our that's our probability yeah. of recession model is two percent. Oh Chris Chris L, do you have a view? Don't need to. Yeah, I was also going to say 2%. 
2%. And Gaurav, you have a view? I would intuitively go with Ryan on, on the US economy. It's, it's got to be closer yeah. to 2%. Because Ryan's never if not, wrong, if not right? below. Because, oh, yeah, we're like, yes, so, so I've heard. So, <laughs> the safe bet then. All right, we're all on the same Mark, page. It's less than yours? 10. Well, I'm on, I'm on record. I said less than 1%. I said that, I mean, that just, I blurted that out I, without any thought at all. So, uh, but it feels right to me. That feels but very You low. can point to our probability recession model. It's 2%. So you're. It's really 2%. Yeah. It's 2%. Okay, there you go. I should have I done that. I didn't think about that. Okay. Let's move on to energy markets. Uh, and uh, to kind of uh, lay the table, uh, Chris L., can you give us a sense of of energy prices, oil, natural gas, coal, whatever you think is important. Uh, and I know prices, the price increases are across the entire globe, but it varies a yes. lot by where you are in the globe. Maybe you can give us a sense of that just to lay the table here. Um, sure. Well, uh, energy prices are surging everywhere. I would say that Europe is in the midst of a crisis. I, I don't think I, it's too much of a stretch to use that word with respect to energy prices in Europe. Um, even in the US, natural gas prices have doubled uh, since the start of the year. And the US has one of the most plentiful reserves of natural gas in the entire world uh, that is full of a robust private sector that has historically uh, invested extremely aggressively in bringing hydrocarbon production to bear. So uh, that's, and the natural gas price increases have been more substantial in Europe. They have been um, uh, uh, present in Asia as well. So you're seeing global natural gas prices um, increase quite rapidly. Hey, Chris, um, give us some numbers. What are some numbers? I mean, I, I, like I know oil, West Texas Intermediate is sitting at 83, 84 bucks. Brent's at 85, 86 bucks. Yes. You know, if, back in the teeth of the pandemic, it was, you know, almost zero. You know, at one point, the futures were negative, negative <laughs> as I recall. So, okay, that gives you context. And that's global. Oil prices are a global market. And so that gives you a sense of that. Natural gas. In the United States, we were at, you know, three buck per million BTU. We're now at five, six buck per mil, million BTU. Yes. What about, what about, uh, uh, what about Asia? What are we in Asia on, on, on so natural gas? the price to import liquefied natural gas in Japan for September delivery is 1387 per million BTU. Great. And I what mean, was it before this, all this? It was, was how low was in, it? In January, it was nine, right? Nine. So you're talking about 50% um, price increase. And obviously, it's, it's, you have a level, you have a base effect there, right? Because you have a higher base of, uh, price for liquefied natural gas. Japan doesn't have a lot of its own hydrocarbon production, so it has to import so much of its energy from other countries. And exporting gas is an extremely costly process because you have to actually turn it into a liquid by super cooling it and then putting it on a tanker and then having that tanker reach a regasification plant and then it gets regasified and used, and and so the transportation cost is very costly. Uh, process is very costly, and that explains the high base price for gas. And so the percentage increase is going to be not as substantial because of that. But still, I mean, these LNG prices are tied to oil prices, right? And so when oil prices rise, gas prices rise, and um, the phenomenon is 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 across the board. I would say. There's multiple reasons why it's almost. Well, we'll like get into that. 
We'll get into that. But but on in terms of the uh, prices, Garav, can you give us a sense of uh, prices in Europe? I know they're they. I think they're even up much. I think Chris said a crisis. Would you characterize yeah, it as I a crisis? Characterize it as a crisis, and that, that crisis has several dimensions. Um, so I'll just move away from numbers for a bit and talk about the story, if yeah. I may. So sure. in in the in, in in the UK, the UK doesn't depend that much on Russian gas, for instance, whereas in Europe, in mainland Europe, there's a lot of dependence on Russian gas. So there's a slightly different story there. If you look at continental Europe and this big dependence on Russian gas, that is causing a concern for the coming winter. So last winter was pretty cold and gas supplies were depleted in, in continental Europe. Then we had economies opening up and we had massive demand, which around the world, and we had gas shortages. And or we, we started seeing a big increase in gas prices. And now that we're looking at upcoming winter, the question really is, can, can Europe actually fill up its strategic gas reserves in time for that winter or not? And the answer doesn't look January, February delivery in Europe. And why is Russia not playing ball? Why is Russia not pumping out more gas? And I guess a couple of reasons behind that. One of those is probably quite strategic, so Russia is holding back, it seems, on, on filling up gas into Europe. It's, it's fulfilling all its contracts, by the way. So that's really important to bear in mind. There's the economics of Gazprom clearly here. You know, you have to play out. It is fulfilling all its contracts. The question is, why isn't it doing any more? And that seems to become a bit more political because of the second pipeline, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. There's a pipeline that runs through the Ukraine that's awaiting approval from the European Union. The Ukraine is opposed to having this pipeline run through it. And it doesn't want this pipeline to be given approval. And Russia seems to be playing some sort of game where it wants, it's using this particular pipeline as, a, as, as part of its, its discussions with Europe for, for putting out more gas. And it's apparently started filling up this particular pipeline with gas, uh, almost, almost waiting for Europe to say yes, so it can open the taps and supply, supply Europe with gas. But yesterday, for instance, there was an auction that took place for, for delivery, for, for near-term delivery of gas. And um, Gazprom didn't agree to supply more gas. So the current pipelines into Europe are carrying uh, well short of their capacity. And I think prices went up to give some idea of short-term changes in gas markets. Prices went up 18% off the back of that news. So that's that's Europe. And, and the UK, you've got other issues, including supply. UK is really bad on supply. So, and really bad on storage. So in the UK several years ago, they decided to cut back on storage facilities. So I think the UK has got about five days excess storage at most, simply because they scaled back and they shut down some of the strategic supply, uh, strategic storage facilities. And then you've got the problem that you've, you've actually had um, gas operators go bust in the UK. A lot of small gas energy suppliers have gone bust. And um, that's creating a problem with actually taking on customers and creating a lot of uncertainty for customers and creating potential issues around energy security in coming months. Uh, the UK actually needs a lot of gas in coming months because about 85% of households rely on gas for home heating, in addition to the fact that gas is actually, I, I, I think it, it, it's used about for about one third of electricity generation. So it's going to be a lot of demand for gas, not a lot of supply, storage issues, and then household utilities, households facing pretty large bills. There are caps on the price of gas in the UK. And people are now coming off those caps because these are one-year contracts. And as they come off those caps, they go on to standard variable contracts. And as soon as they go on to standard variable contract, they're now being slammed with a huge, huge increase in the price of gas, which has been more than five-fold in the last few months. So yeah, I, I think that's right. It is a crisis. 
so uh, uh, those are uh, uh, just to make to make it clear to the listener. In terms of oil, it's a global market, so the price of oil doesn't vary very much across the globe. The the price is the price. What the price is. What you've been you, you've been focused on, Gaurav, is the natural gas market, the market for gas. That is very much a regional market, although to some degree that can be broken down by liquefied natural gas. You know, U.S. produces a lot of uh, natural gas that it can ship through LNG to a place like Japan or Europe, but there, that's limited. There's a limited amount of capacity to do that. So. Uh, natural gas prices vary considerably around the world. In the United States, they're low. As Chris pointed, L pointed out, we have got a lot of natural gas here in the U.S., and so that keeps prices low. In Europe, not so much. You rely on Russia, and because of the dynamics you just discussed, uh, that's causing prices to go skyward. Uh, the other uh, uh, two other things on price before we dig even deeper into the reasons for for all this, and I'm, this is to you, Chris L. One thing I'm a little confused by. If you look at oil, it's say 83 bucks WTI, 85 bucks Brent. That's well below, you know, the peaks we saw back like in 08, I believe the all-time high in 2008, we hit the all-time high of what, 140 bucks maybe, 150 bucks on WTI, yeah. something like that. Gasoline prices though feel like they're really high compared to even gasoline prices here in the United States. Feel really high compared to eighty dollar oil. We're at three buck thirty five, three buck fifty for a gallon of regular unleaded. And even back in 08 at the peak, I think we're at four twenty five or something. So what gives? Why are gasoline? I, first of all, is do I have this right? Is this is this is something weird going on? And if so, what's going on? Why are why are gasoline prices so high here? So the gasoline price is com is comprised of four components. One is the price of crude oil. The second is the retail markup. Uh, the third is the tax component. And the fourth is the crack spread. And so this is the uh, amount that uh, refineries charge um, for their services, for the refining and the distribution of the um, crude oil, which is the raw product. They refine it, they create diesel, kerosene, jet fuel, distillates, residual fuel, gasoline, and then the gasoline is uh, transported um, and to, the, um, to, the, to the retailer and then it's sold. Um, you know, there hasn't been a federal increase in the gasoline tax for, I want to say, like 30 years like since the Clinton years. Yeah, early yeah. 90s. And yeah, I mean, there are some states that have increased. In fact, we live in one, Pennsylvania, which over the last 10 years or so has instituted an increase in, in uh, uh, um, taxes. But it's really the crack spread. Um, so, And this goes back to the supply issues, right? The supply chain. It's the, the, and I said it before, but I'll say it again, the supply side of the economy is under tremendous stress right now. And it's hard to hire qualified workers to source materials um, and parts and labor is expensive. And as a result, there is a broad um, bleeding into the overall price level um, from the challenges in the supply chain. I just mentioned, I didn't get a discount off of MSRP on that new Nissan uh, so it's creeping into inflation. And so, 
So you're saying that the refiners can't ramp up a production of refined product because they're facing material labor shortages. Well, well, that's part of it, but they're also the the aftermath of the hurricanes uh, that happened in the United States. Okay, Hurricane and, Ida did have an impact on this. Yes, yes, okay. and and um, the maintenance operations, and um, and that goes to uh, the broader reason for the increase in the oil price. A lot of U.S. oil production was shut down um, from from the hurricanes as well. And so, and it impacted refineries. And a lot of these are located for the listeners on the Gulf Coast. And that's a major refining hub uh, for, for the United States. So when a hurricane comes through and it does damage and it shuts in production and it forces refineries to go offline for a little while, um, that's a loss in product production. And it, and it shows up in inventories and it drives up prices. Got it. Hey, the other... Uh price that's up a lot is coal prices. And this too is more regional, global. It's not a global price because coal markets are more regional like natural gas markets. In some parts of the world, particularly I think in China, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in China, they've really gone skyward. And, and part of the problem was one of the things that's going on there is because coal prices are so high, that's causing some electric utilities to divert to natural gas, which is contributing to the increase in natural gas prices. Do I have that dynamic right? And what's going on with coal prices? So that's just a power shortage, right? There's a power shortage in China. And they they don't really want to use coal, but they don't really have too many options right now. You mentioned that the Chinese economy didn't grow substantially in the third quarter. Um, and they're very um, focused on uh, top-line economic growth. And so if it means importing coal to supply power, uh, then they will do so. And and this, by the way, this shortage of Chinese electricity is coming at the same time when Chinese authorities cracked down on Bitcoin mining. You know, and China used to be the largest Bitcoin miner in the world, and that takes electricity. And now the US, US is. <laughs> um, and despite that, they're still uh, importing coal just to meet the power demands of, of uh, the Chinese economy. So that Chinese demand has really put upward pressure on coal prices. Hey, Garab, do you know in, in Europe, it is, I mean, coal is still a, a source fuel for a lot of electric production in parts of Europe. Are coal prices up as well? It's a negligible part of the electricity mix. And if you look across European countries, then... Yeah, I guess it's mostly Eastern Europe. Like yes, Poland. exactly. Eastern, yeah, Europe, yeah. Eastern Europe has much has a much bigger problem with coal and a much greater need for coal. Yeah. Oil, natural gas, coal, everything is up a lot. Some parts of the world more than others, given what's going on. What fundamentally is driving this? I'm sure there's many reasons. We've already talked about a few, but what, what do you think is the fundamental reasons for you know what's going on here? Why, why are energy prices up? And th- this is to either you, Chris L., or Grav, whomever wants to take that question. Well, I'll take that first because, and sorry, Chris L., I'll take that first because I've kind of given an answer to that from the European perspective, that there are regional stories behind this shortage. I mean, one, one point um, Chris L. was talking about China pushing into um, pushing into gas, not, not having enough coal and having to rely on gas, etc. An interesting statistic for the UK, an interesting story for the UK is that in the month of August, we saw the lowest wind speed since 1961, right? 
Now, some people say that that's actually because of climate change, because of the way the rate at which Arctic ice caps are melting. It's actually playing around with wind speeds, and it resulted in lower wind speeds across Europe in August. Now, the UK generates almost a third of its electricity from renewables. And when wind speeds fell, it had to rely more on gas, which pushed up, you know, which pushed up pressure. Which we pushed, can't win. We just can't win. Gas, gas prices. And then if you get to, that's just one story, of course. I think yeah. the bigger, bigger story was... Uh, actually around the global shortage or the global increase in gas prices and the pressure on gas. In Europe, it's very much this regional story of what's happening with Russia and Russia's ability stroke willingness to supply more gas in coming months. Got it. Got it. And, and Chriselle, uh, broadly speaking, what's driving this surge in prices, energy prices around the globe? I mean, abstracting from the kind of the idiosyncratic uh, things that are uh, uh, creating issues in different parts of the world. Broadly, what's going on here? Uh, underinvestment and supply chain bottlenecks. Not demand? Because, uh, well, demand is recovering, right? Demand is recovering uh, at, at a good pace. Uh, we're coming off of Delta, um, but there has, but demand always rises. And the problem has been that supply has not kept up with that pace of demand increase and okay i'm gonna push back um, on that. let's look at the oil market demand okay. for oil is 100 million barrels a day almost on the nose which makes it really easy to remember that's what it was pre-pandemic and that's what it is today but it's come you know it sharply fell during the pandemic and it's sharply recovered coming as, as the global economy has recovered here since the beginning of the year we're back up to 100 million barrels a day but the supply side of the market is not it hasn't gotten back to 100 million. It was producing 100 million barrels a day. Price of oil was 50, 60 bucks a barrel pre-pandemic. What's going on? And you're saying that that's because of the supply chain bottlenecks? I mean, that's what's going on, that they can't, can't ramp it up? They can't get the, the production up to meet the demand? Well, if you're talking about oil, the problem is there's a cartel that doesn't want to boost output. Okay. Right? They withheld production. They cut it tremendously, 12 million barrels per day. I've never seen anything like it. And they're withholding some of that production. And the, the market, like the, the rest of the world, the market have underinvested um, chronically. And, and, and I really, I can't uh, understand it. Like I was reading the other day in the Financial Times, the CEO of Pioneer, which is a US oil producer, talking about how his shareholders wanted him to return capital in the form of dividend payment and they were going to punish him if he plowed money into expanding U.S. oil production and gas production. At the same time, I'm looking at the break-even price of oil production, and it's way lower than the current oil prices we have. And so I think right now the market is sending a strong signal for producers to ramp up production and make money. And I don't see a dramatic increase in the um, active rotary rigs looking for natural gas. And it's rising for oil, but not at a very strong pace. And so for whatever reason, um, whether it's a lack of uh, willpower on the part of um, oil producers, or there are some technical problems, they, they physically, they can't get the workers or they can't lease the equipment or whatever it might be, or, uh, some some other reason. There's a lot of pressure on the supply uh, side of the economy uh, across industries, not just um, energy. 
uh, or or housing or automobiles or what have you. Uh-oh. It's not happening, right? Production from the market is not happening. OPEC is not uh, boosting production. And then you get these hurricanes. And then you get, by the way, this surge in gas prices that is prompting switching. You know, now if you're in Europe, you're going to use oil to generate electricity instead of gas because it's cheaper because the gas price went up several times. So it's a it's a combination of factors that have driven. Um, the OK, so this is the way I would characterize it. And let's use the oil market as our uh, benchmark because this dynamic is playing out in all the energy markets. And of course, there's a lot of other things going on, as you've just described. But what happened was the pandemic hit. Demand gets crushed. We go from 100 million barrels a day down to what was the low in terms of global demand? Was it 85 million? Yeah, yeah, it's about 85. About 85 million barrels a day. Supply falls too. I mean, the suppliers say, hey, I can't sell oil. Prices are going to zero in the teeth of the pandemic. So they drop production all the way down. OPEC slashes production. Everybody slashes production. Uh, fast forward to early this year, vaccines, the economy reopens, everyone starts to travel, demand goes right back up. We're now back up to close to 100 million barrels a day, right where we were pre-pandemic. But the producers, they're starting to ramp things up, but it's been very, very slow to do that. And you're saying, okay, what are the reasons for that? One of the reasons is supply side bottlenecks. I can't you know, find workers. I can't, uh, I, I can't find the materials I need. Another reason I under um, I've I've under in, invested for some time, particularly in the coal industry, obviously because of the, you know the uh, the issues around carbonization and climate, and that's that's an industry that doesn't have much of a future, so no one's been investing in that. And then here's the third reason you throw forward is well maybe something's going on in these markets where the industry players are saying I'm going to try to remain as disciplined as I can, even though I can make a boatload of money by producing more at this price. I'm not going to do that because I'm going to enjoy these higher prices for longer. So it's just it's just taking some time for them to respond to the higher prices and ramp up production. But but you're it sounds like you think that's a matter of time. Is that is that a good way of characterizing it? The way I just put it, it forward. It is. I would just do a slight correction. So we're forecasting like ninety eight. Beware, 99. beware. Correcting yeah. me is a very uh, dangerous. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> okay, right, it's just I'm a like few. Kidding. Yeah, yeah. What's yeah. A, what 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 is a million or two barrels per day amongst friends? That's the only thing I would say. But like, uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. But like, you're you're broadly spot on. It it's that I do think it is a matter of time. I do think that the the market through the price is sending a strong signal to producers right now. I expect them to respond by investing more in oil and gas production. Uh, there, there's no, you know, there's President Biden is not going to stop you from drilling. I promise, <laughs> you know, that's, that's cooked up, you know, and with respect to, uh, pipeline being the, the source of all evil, that's not the case either. Right. It, the problem is we need more investment from us oil and gas firms. And I think they can make money unless their input costs have just escalated so astronomically that the break-even price is over $70 per bale. And even then they're still making money. So I, I expect the supply to come back. And also OPEC, I mean, you have to expect them at some point to um, uh, loosen the grip on some of these production cuts and supply the market and return to kind of their pre-pandemic levels, which they're not at right now. 
Got it. Okay, so uh, I want to do two two more things in the in the in the in this conversation. The first is a, a question around well, what is the impact of these higher prices on the economy? How big a deal is it? I know it varies a lot where you are in the world, and I want to talk about that. And then I want to I'm going to end. You guys, I want you to think about this while we're discussing this. Is where are we headed? What is and we'll use oil as our benchmark. What is what are, do you think oil prices are going to be a year from now? Uh, so and let's go first to the question of what's the impact, uh, Garab? I, I suspect that this is a big deal in Europe because Europe consumes a lot of energy but doesn't produce very much. Do I have that right? You have that spot on, Mark. It's it's a, it is a big deal in Europe, and it's a big deal going into winter and. Part of how this plays out will depend on how cold winter is and when the winter snap actually occurs. <laughs> so the longer we have, the milder, the milder, the longer and the milder the winter is, the more time Europe has to fill up its strategic reserves, which makes this less of a problem <laughs> as and when a cold snap occurs. And if, it, if that cold snap occurs sooner and lasts for a long time, then I think Europe is facing a fairly difficult situation in winter. And that, I, I guess that spills over into social discontentment as much as it does into economic costs. You've got, you've got the issue right. of rising energy prices. I gave you some numbers at the start of this, that there was 3.4% September headline number for uh, inflation in, in the Eurozone, of which 1.7 percentage points is actually energy prices. And it's been that way for a while. So in the five years before the pandemic, energy prices barely contributed anything to inflation in the euro area actually detracted from inflation during the pandemic because it fell so sharply and now it's just skyrocketing so if this continues over winter um, this is a big deal in terms of in, in terms of disposable income and, and the pinch on consumers but it's also a big deal in terms of i guess social social factors yeah it makes sense in the, in, I want... in, 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 sorry i just say switch over to the uk it's probably even worse and that's because of Brexit concerns. That's causing supply shortages of all kinds. It's not just because global demands up and people can't get um, stuff done on time. It's also because the, the whole economic institutional setup of the UK has changed, and they're really struggling to deal with that right now. Uh, so, so in the UK, I guess you've got a bunch of compounding factors which will add to the problem, which takes us beyond this particular topic. But just to point that out. Yeah, just to connect the dots back to something you said about BOE, Bank of England, monetary policy, you know, sort of the, I think the thinking here in the US would be, yes, uh, inflation is higher, the uh, or higher energy prices are adding to that. And yes, that's a negative supply shock, particularly in the UK, because you don't produce as much oil or the EU uh, more, more specifically. So you get weaker growth, more inflation. And as a central bank, you have to make a decision. What do I do with that? You know, do I res respond to the higher inflation or do I respond to the weaker growth? In the U.S., the answer would be, well, it depends on inflation expectations. If inflation expectations remain stable, I respond to the weaker growth and I, I keep my foot on the accelerator. I don't raise rates. But if it's rising and adding to inflation expectations in a meaningful way, you know, it, you know, after you adjust for all the measurement issues that Ryan was talking about, then I will start to tighten monetary policy quicker. So, which is it? Is that a kind of frame the way people think about it in the in, in the UK? And you know, where does that lead us in terms of BOE policy? So, I think people do think of it in that frame. But I'd add to that that you've got to start thinking about um, you've got to size supply in the UK post Brexit. What is the actual productive potential of the economy? Certainly not what it what we used to think it was back in 2016 before the Brexit vote. 
now that this has happened and we're coming out of it and starting to size the entire the actual optimal level of output in this economy and working out that perhaps it's a it's a it's it's considerably lower perhaps than we thought it was then that gives us a, another view of what's equilibrium level of output what's the natural level of full employment output in this economy that and that has to come into play in the bank of england's considerations i think so if you were sitting in the boe do you would you advocate raising rates in november you know given everything that you know so far you're sitting oh, I'm probably more dovish. I'm probably a more dovish person, so I'd yeah. probably advocate holding off raising rates in November. It's, it's a really difficult call to raise rates in November because on the one side, one hand, you've got the whole supply side problem, and you really wonder to what extent raising rates is going to solve the supply side problem. Uh, and then you've got these additional issues with, okay, the, actually the productive potential of the economy might have come down, and you've got to worry about inflation expectations. Uh, and, and the fact that you've got a 2% target, but you're facing the prospect of 5% inflation. So it's a very difficult call. But I'd probably, I'd probably uh, be more cautious and a bit more dovish and hold off and not raise rates in November. Yeah. Well, just, I think it's nuts to raise rates in November. I think you know, way, way too premature to do that. But yeah. Anyway. I'd be inclined the, to agree. Remember the ECB? Yeah. Yeah, I do remember recession. the Yeah, they yeah. they jumped at the first chance to raise rates, and that was a big mistake. And it seems that was like, like 2011, I think. And, right? and, and if you go back beyond before that, the Bank of Japan did the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Jumped at the first the first chance to raise rates, and look where they where they've been ever since. Huge error. Hey, Chris. Okay, so uh, how big a deal is it here in the U.S. that you know uh, these higher energy prices? Is you know we we now produce yeah. pretty much as much as we consume, I think, roughly speaking. So. In theory, not big a deal. Is that well, kind of the way you think about it? Well, I mean, it's going to hurt consumers. If you look at what they spent in Q4 versus what they're going to spend in Q4 this year, you know, last year relative to this year, they're going to spend about $120 billion more annualized in the fourth quarter um, compared to a year ago. And what's the math on that as a percentage of GDP? Uh, it's, uh, it's about five, half, half a percent, six tenths half, of a percent. Okay. So, and it won't, you won't show up that kind of stress because, you know, Q of GDP, we report uh, sequentially. Um, and, and, and so if, if you look at compare, compared to Q3 of 2021, instead of Q4 of 2020, the increase is going, isn't going to be too substantial, but I mean, this acts as, this acts as a tax cut. I mean, as a tax increase, it's taking money away uh, that would be spent otherwise on other goods and services, and it's inflationary, right? And it reduces the value of real economic activity. And so, I, I mean, it's probably going to be closer to like ten or twenty basis points on GDP growth. Um, but I mean, it's substantial, and I don't know. And I'd love to hear Ryan's thoughts on it. What the Federal Reserve's view on this? If well, no, they believe it's trans- Wait a second. Wait a second. You, you did half the story, though. You, yes, it hurts consumers. But it helps producers. So what's the net of all that? I mean, yeah, I think the bottom producing. line is, I mean, <laughs> yeah. No, no, I mean, they're ramping up production. They're gonna, as you say, they're gonna ramp up production. Okay. Yeah, I, I expect them to. I mean, yeah, but I like. Um, but what are they doing? They're like paying dividends. I mean, like, where did and what's the spending rate versus the savings rate for those people that are getting dividends? It's it's probably like fifteen percent savings. And consumers generally have like 5% savings rate. So on net, it's a negative. Okay. But it's probably a small negative, right? Don't you think, Chris? I mean, 
It's gotten smaller. I mean, the U.S. Yeah. is has uh, through the shale revolution, like yeah. um, come pretty close to being net energy neutral, but but um, but it's lost market share in the pandemic for sure. Okay, go ahead and ask your question to Ryan. I'm curious what he says. Yeah, I mean, Ryan, I, you've and I got a question from this from a reporter at the Houston Chronicle like this week, and she says, "Well, is the Fed going to move faster because of?" increases in energy prices so are they thinking transitory like uh for everything else i mean it creates a little bit of a communication issue because i mean the fed's been beating the drum that all the inflation that we've seen recently is transitory now you have higher oil prices which will boost headline inflation but also bleed into core through which excludes food and energy prices you know the volatile components of consumer prices via higher transportation costs but the feds learned their lesson from the past and that you know, fluctuations in oil prices, you know, either rising or falling, are temporary, and that you know this isn't going to cause them to raise rates sooner. And I'll, okay, I'll you, here's an. That's what thing. I said as well. So I feel a little there bit better about my response. Oil, <laughs> oil prices, uh, or the the impact of rising oil prices will be a positive on Q4 GDP because the positive. increase in production Ooh. will okay. offset more than offset. And I also think I'm more optimistic that the hit to consumption will be smaller because we have a lot of excess savings. Excess saving, so yeah. this, this shock is not going to be like it was in 08. So I think it's going to be a net positive. Not a lot, but positive. Can we, how you, do we figure out the answer to this? Uh, I think you two have to take it outside is what I think. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> But but yeah, I will yeah. say Ryan watches. By, the, by the way, Chris, I'm with Ryan on this one, baby. I'm with Ryan. Okay. On well, Ryan has knows the nip is better than I do, so I don't want to argue. I don't want to put up too much of a fight. Okay, we're going to end this this way. As I said, I want to know, and and I know Garab, this is a stretch for you because you got to put these things in dollars. You know, we're forcing you into dollar terms, but oil is sitting at uh, let's say, let's use uh, Brent, eighty five bucks a barrel. Uh, what is Brent going to be on October twenty second, twenty twenty two? And I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go uh, with Chris D first, because what I, my always my mistake is to go with everyone else first. Go to him last, and he finds the middle point of the, for, <laughs> of the forecast. <laughs> no, I'm not doing that. I'm not falling for that again. Chris is calculating right. the historical average right now. Well, what he's doing, he's no, looking at the futures I, market. Is what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> Just crypto. Just looking at Bitcoin. Um, yeah. Seventy-five. Seventy-five dollars, eighty-five yeah. now, seventy-five dollars a year from now. Okay, uh, yeah. Ryan. I was going to go seventy-five, but since Chris, oh, I'll go, I'll go seventy. I'm going to go a little lower. Seventy, 70 oh. bucks a barrel. Okay, yep. all right. Uh, Grav, where, where are you? And, and you can say, "Hey, I don't want to do. I don't want to play this game." No, I want to do this. I want to do this. And I'm going to. Right, go to do it. I'm even going to do it in dollars. Yeah, <laughs> it's fine. Okay, but I was actually going to go. Well, first of all, I was going to say lower. Okay. And I'm, I'm going to say that because I'm going to agree with Chris Lefakis that actually production is going to ramp up over the next 12 months. OPEC's going to get, it's their pockets are going to fill out and then they're going to get, they're going to have some rumblings and then they will increase capacity. Um, and I think the global oil market will just start getting better supplied at some point. So I'm going to go lower. How much lower? Well, I was tempted to take 10 bucks off, but that's been done twice now. <laughs> so I'm probably going to have to say somewhere between, you know, 75 and 80. See that? See how he does yeah. that? He's very crafty. Oh, nice. He's very, very crafty. crafty. Just put a range in yeah, there. Very crafty. Put a range in there. And you very can take the midpoint crafty. of that range, you know, 77 would be fine. 
All right. All right. Grav is on record for 77.5, 77. yeah. 77.5. Chris is, Grav is 77.5. Chris is 75. Ryan, you said 70. 70. 70. I think, okay. some, uh, I think we've got some anchoring bias uh, going on here. Right? I think we do yeah, too. Yeah. Chris L., what coming. do you think the, what the price is going to be? Well, the number in my mind before Chris went and started us off was a hundred. Oh, 75. <laughs> oh, that, you know, it is anchoring bias. That's what it yep. is. It's no, bias. but, but before he said anything, I had this number in my head. Um, I don't know. Maybe for fun, I'll go seven. No, no, no. You, you, everyone knows on inside economics. There's no, I don't know on inside economics. I know the price is going to be Chris L. 75. <laughs> well, okay. I, I, you know what, guys? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow you out of the water. 60 bucks a barrel. Because you know why? That's the equilibrium price for oil. That's where it should be in the long run. And I think it takes about a year. Maybe a little longer than that. You know, maybe it's, you know, spring of 2023. But I think 60 bucks a barrel. Ben, 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 who's our uh, producer, who's listening uh, into all this, you write all this down. This, this is, this is, we're going to come back on December 22nd, 2022. And we're going to find out who won that bet or this hasn't been a bet, but we're going to see who was right. Uh, okay. We're going to call this a podcast. Uh, this was a great conversation. We covered a lot of ground. Hopefully you found it informative. Do you want to remind folks, uh, go to economy.com hit on hit the inside economics, the button and tell us what you want us to chat about. We pay a lot of attention to that. We also, would like you to rate us, you know, on these podcasts, we value that and would appreciate you to go up to Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. Uh, Really would appreciate that. So with that, we'll call it a podcast. Take care, everyone. 